And this morning, the passage that we will consider together is James chapter 3, and we will be looking at the entirety of the third chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. If you're a visual person... Uh, I might suggest to you uh, this kind of visual outline for the the book of James as as we almost come to the the halfway point of of this book, looking at it together. Uh, The visual metaphor I'd give you would be that James is like a tree. Uh, The trunk of the tree is, is this idea of Christian wisdom, right? This is wisdom in the way of Jesus. This is wisdom that is shaped by the the person and work and even words of, of Jesus. That's the trunk of the tree. And then out from the trunk come these branches. And these branches are the very practical and everyday manifestations of what this wisdom looks like. When we think of wisdom, I think what should come to mind is Tuesday afternoon. How to live the good life on Tuesday afternoon. Why Tuesday afternoon? Because it's just the ordinary middle of the day kind of time. Middle of the week kind of time. And and on on Tuesday afternoon, uh, wisdom speaks to how we relate to others. It's not just about knowledge and what we believe, but how our belief and knowledge impacts our behavior and how we live. In chapters 1 and 2, we have the branches, the the, the big picture of a life characterized by wisdom. Uh, And so those branches consist of how we deal with trials, how we need to not just read God's word, but, but live God's word, do what we read out of that word. How the faith that saves us is a faith that is seen because it, it works. The, the, safe, the faith that saves us is a faith that's transformative. The faith that saves us also changes us. 
The rest of the book, chapters three through five, so where we are picking up this morning, we take those big ideas and James breaks them down even further. It's like James takes the branch of wisdom, that is a particular topic, and he puts it under the microscope. And we see the grain of the wood, and we see the veins of the leaves. And so, for instance, in James 1.19, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart... This person's religion is worthless. And so off of that trunk of Christian wisdom, we have the branch of right speech. And now James is going to put that under the microscope. Let's take this idea even further. So today's passage, as we just read, is all about speech, how we use our tongues, and we'll look together at the power of words. And James insists that there is basically nothing as powerful as words He says, no human being can tame the tongue. Full stop, that's what he says. No human being can tame the tongue. God has to act, and he does so among his people by giving them the gift of wisdom. And so those are our two points this morning. There are sub-points under the the first, the power of wisdom, and we'll see what what it means for for words, excuse me, the power of words, what it means for words to, to have power. And then we'll look at the only thing powerful enough to tame the power of words, which is the power of wisdom. All right, so first of all, power of words. I think we all know words are powerful. I'm, I'm hoping that we all know that. I don't think that's a particularly Christian idea. Uh, it's not something unique to the church. I think most human beings understand the idea that words are powerful. I hope that in, in, in the year of our Lord, 2022, none of us are saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me or hurt you. Um, not only is that just not true, it's also not biblical, because what did James just say? There's nothing more powerful than words, which gives us insight into just how damaging words can be. Let's think about childhood for a little bit when we, when we think about the power of words. How many of us, I know this, this can be kind of a, a, a raw topic, but how many of us struggle with deep-rooted shame because the words we heard growing up convinced us that we just weren't enough. We were created to hear the words, well done, because Adam was created to hear the words, well done, and yet those words were maybe withheld by our parents. Maybe those words were exchanged with words of disappointment, and that impacts us. Words are powerful. There was a study published in Psychology Today where subjects were put into an MRI machine and then given uh, negative reinforcement, and the researchers looking at the monitors could see the physiological reaction to just hearing those negative words. Stress hormones were produced. The logic section of the brain, which helps us to rationalize and to logically think, all of a sudden it becomes disrupted, and we don't think so clearly. But of course, words are powerful, not just negatively, but positively. And that's always the other side of the coin when we're talking about the power of words. And so, go back to childhood. If you had a safe and secure childhood, a big part of that was words. Words were used well. You ever heard of the idea of familex? A dialect is the language of a region or people. Familex are kind of quirky languages of families. Maybe idiosyncratic ways you use words or phrases that that the people in your home know. Maybe you can think of examples of those in your own family. And what those familecs do is they create just an additional sense of belonging, an additional sense of security. My point is, this this is a long-winded way of saying, words have remarkable 
power. James begins this section with just an offhand comment. You probably might want to reconsider being a teacher. Why? Because teachers talk a lot. I talk a lot. I'll be judged stricter because I use my mouth a whole lot. And James says, yikes, that's a scary place to be. He provides a sober warning. Are you sure you want to talk a lot? The tongue can get you in trouble. The tongue is powerful. Why is the tongue so powerful? I think we can find three ways that James identifies the power of the tongue. First of all, it has directive power. The tongue has directive power. It has a kind of steering power over someone's life. So look at verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James says, show me a perfect man, and I will show you someone who knows how to use their tongue, who knows how to use their words well. So basically, James is saying, control your tongue, and you will control uh, most of what you're doing with your life if you can grasp control over that one part of yourself. He uses a couple of illustrations that are really common in the ancient world. You can find these all over ancient Greco-Roman philosophers, and, and he's communicating the basic point that they're making as well, which is that you have something that's remarkably small controlling something that's big. You have a bit and a rudder. The bit controls a big horse. The rudder controls a big ship. And so also, you have something small, your tongue, and it controls something big, your entire person. Your tongue directs you. It guides you. It steers you. Now, we might ordinarily say, is that right? Isn't it that our hearts steer us? Our wills, our desires steer us, and I think that's true. But keep in mind, the, the, the bit is being controlled by a rider. The rudder is being controlled by the pilot. And so James is pointing out this interplay, this reinforcement of our tongues with our hearts. It's as if we have a heart and our tongues reinforce and they push those desires, they push that heart in one direction. Let me give you some examples of this and what this means practically. Rehearsing anger. If you're anything like me, and I think you are, I know that you have sat in your car or you have walked home from school and you have had an entire dialogue of telling someone off. Maybe you had the meeting and you thought you told the person off and then you thought, you know what, there were some zingers that I missed. And so what do you do? You just, you just keep going. And you think it's cathartic. You think it's cleansing. You think, yeah, this is actually really healthy. But what it's doing is it's taking that bitterness and it's just indulging. And we all know that indulging, even wrong things, can have a little bit of sense of pleasure, right? It's gratifying, but no, it's toxic. And so our tongues direct us. We take that bitterness that exists and we go with it even further, we bring it in, into even more reality, you, you could say. Do you ever find yourself speaking words of condemnation to you? Are you your harshest critic? Do you think it's true that some of the nastiest things that you say are to you? What is that? That's a feedback loop of discouragement and judgment. We haven't even looked at how destructive the tongue is when we're talking to other people. This is just about talking to myself and how directive my tongue can be. But again, the opposite is true. Our words can also uplift our spirit. We have an example of this in Scripture. In Psalm 42, a pretty well-known psalm, right? As a, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. My soul longs, it's thirsty, right? The soul is thirsty, the psalmist says. His soul thirsts for God, but he's staying thirsty. His tears have been his food day and night. That is a bad place to be, isn't it? He's miserable, 
when all he's ingesting are his own tears. People are looking at him, crying out to God, and they're saying, my man, God's not coming to you. And what changes? Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. So what's he doing? His words are directing him. They're directing his heart. The psalmist is steering his feelings and his heart with the words that he speaks to himself. And so all this is to say that as powerful as our hearts are, there is this intimate, organic connection with how our mouths carry out or even steer the realities of what we're feeling and who we are. Secondly, the tongue has destructive power. Look at verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The idea here is that you have sins committed with the tongue, and those spread pollution, not only to the whole person, we've talked about that a little bit, but also, unsurprising because we're talking about James, it also spreads pollution to your neighbor. Your tongue destroys your neighbor. Let's look at this idea of spiritual pollution, which I think is a helpful metaphor. Our, our words, right, release the toxins of our pride, of our resentment, of our jealousy, of our conceit into the atmosphere, and it's not harmless. It's destructive. It's one thing to have a harsh, critical thought towards someone for whatever reason. And 99.99% of the time, those critical thoughts like, must be repented of. But you also have a decision to make. You can, you can put out that smoldering fire, or you can fan into flames by gossiping, by having a critical word towards someone. And we're reminded our words have incredible power to inflict pain. Let me give you another example. You're at work and you're going to miss a deadline, and so you have this internal temptation that you realize right away. One is that you can face the consequences and you can be honest, and, and that might mean something to your boss. Your, your boss might respect that, but you also have a pretty good lie up your sleeve. And you could maybe lie and you could make up an excuse. You have one ready to go. You have this temptation. What will you do? And all of a sudden, you've, you've set into motion this, this path of destruction because you chose to lie. Now all of a sudden you're paranoid that you'll be caught, that you'll be embarrassed. You were afraid of consequences, but by lying, maybe you're going to face worse consequences. The tongue is powerful to destroy. What's interesting is how James connects the control of the tongue to spiritual maturity. He says the tongue stains the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. There's a profound point here that you can miss because this language is pretty dramatic. Sins of the tongue stain the whole body. They set the course of life on hell. So what is he really getting at? And I think it's this point. Sins of the tongue haunt us our entire lives. It's a little bit depressing to think about. Sins of the tongue haunt us our entire lives. From the time that we are toddlers who can use words until the time that we die, Lord willing, hopefully in, in, in a long, fruitful, old age, all of that time in between, from beginning to the end, sins of the tongue haunt us. 
The author and, 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 and pastor and, and professor Steve Brown, uh, he, he has a really helpful insight. He's in his 80s, and, but he's been saying this for a while. He talks about the fact that he no longer acts on impulses, uh, which, which drove him in his adolescence. And he says, it's not because of spiritual maturity. It's because I don't have as much energy anymore. Another way of saying that is changing hormones don't equate to sanctification. I don't think you have to be a Christian to wake up at some point in your life and maybe look at all of the stuff that you've, you've, just, you've striven after to accumulate and acquire and say, none of this really means anything. I want to be more generous. But no one ages out of a destructive tongue. No one ages out of a tongue that is critical, that complains, that can self-justify, boast, brag, put down, is harsh, is deceptive, is lying, is sarcastic, is cynical. No one ages out of a sinful heart, and James insists no one ages out of a destructive tongue. It's destructive, it's fire-causing. We know this language living out here. Ten years ago, I would have said our words are the cigarette tossed out the car window that starts the wildfire. Today, I'll say our words are the gender reveal party that, that set ablaze the wildfire. And the destructiveness of the tongue is a real concern for our entire lives. So the heart directs, it destroys, and finally it discloses. James looks at the disclosing, the revealing power of the tongue. So look at verses 9 and 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What do you call a freshwater pond that has salt in it? It's just salt water. Well, words reveal what's in the heart. That's a big point here, isn't it? Uh, it feels like every few months or so, you know, a celebrity gets caught saying something they shouldn't be saying. Maybe they make a, a, a pretty bad racist comment, and all of a sudden the, the PR firm has to come out, and, and they have to say, you know, they're getting education about it. They're working to do better, and they always say the same thing, which is, that doesn't reflect who I am. And with all the grace and mercy in the world, what do we say to that? But it is. It's exactly who you are. What you say is who you are. James said it, and James is saying it because his brother Jesus said it too. A person's speech is the barometer of his or her spirituality. It's our speech that reveals what's in here. It's our speech that reveals who is sitting on the throne of, of, of our lives. We will find all of that out when you use your words and when you speak. The human, the, the default position James is, is teaching us is that we go back and forth, right? Where the, the spring is fresh water, sometimes we say nice things, and then, and then we come with, with, with terrible things, with curses, and, and James, at this point, I think he just says, you can't do that. My brothers, may this not be so. You can't say that you love God, but then curse those who bear his image. Because every time you do say that, you're just communicating. You don't really believe the gospel because the gospel says that though I am worthy of being cursed by God for some incredible reason, his heart and his mercy toward me, he blesses me with his words. And so who am I to slide into his judgment throne? Every person is owed honor and dignity just because they bear the image of our creator. What about those who hurt us? 
still not okay to curse. It's still not okay to wish for the demise of someone else or, or to damn to hell someone who has hurt me. What we must do is hand them over to God. To trust God, to trust in, in God that he would resolve the situation with them. Even if we have to hand them over, we don't hand them over to hell. We hand them to God and we trust God's judgment. And we trust God's justice. And so words reveal our hearts. Who sits on the throne? Is it me or God? The tongue is powerful. That's James's point, And one that we see throughout Scripture. So Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It's interesting that when Isaiah the prophet is brought into the throne room of heaven and he, and he sees God and he sees all of these angelic beings, he, he falls apart and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean, not hands, not a man with an unclean heart. I am a man of unclean lips. And behold, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When Paul indicts all of humanity as by, as by nature sinful and rebellious in Romans 3, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. They use their tongues to deceive, and their mouth is filled with curses and bitterness. And so I want you just to, to think about this idea. In the Bible, whenever the case is made for the complete and total depravity and sinfulness of humanity, where does everyone start? How we use our words. How we use our words. In verses 7 through 8, James says, you know, human beings can tame any animal. You can tame animals in the sea. You can have giant killer whales doing spins in the air. And you can't even tame the tongue. St. Augustine commented on this passage 1,500 years ago. He said, you know, James doesn't say no one can tame the tongue. He says no man can tame the tongue. And the reason, Augustine said, was that when it is tamed, we admit that it was done because of the mercy and grace of God. And that's where we turn now. How do we come to tame the power of the tongue? And James says, you got to have the power of wisdom. You need wisdom. How do you receive wisdom? Well, this is what we've seen, right? From God, of course. God who delights to give wisdom. God who single-mindedly gives wisdom when we ask him for it. By his good conduct, let him show his good works in the meekness of wisdom. Uh, the word here for good in, in the Greek is a word that has more to do with like aesthetic beauty. So it, it's more than just a good and moral upright life, which I think is totally included in this idea. But it's a way where good is attractive, uh, where it's beautiful, it's lovely. A way of life whose goodness is plain to see. And this beautiful, lovely, wise life James advocates will put an end to so much of what defines human communities and relationships. It defines our culture. where we, It's going to put an end to bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and disorder. And on the other hand, it will usher in peace, gentleness, reasonableness, and mercy. Wisdom manifests itself in a life characterized by peace, gentleness, reasonableness, and mercy. That's the wise life, but James shows us what the foolish life looks like as well. It looks like bitter jealousy. Again, this is so much of what define our human communities. Uh, the idea here, I think jealousy can throw us off. Really, the, the idea it's being communicated is bitter zeal, bitter passion. An example of this is when some issue is important to you and you demand that everyone else see it the same way you do. 
Fellowship is disrupted if that particular demand is not met. And these can be really important issues to you. This can be uh, political issues, right? The right ordering of our society, very important. It could be about COVID policy. There's been a lot of bitter zeal over COVID policy the last 24 months. It could be forms of schooling. It can be social justice. And as a church community, we will disagree on the importance, the emphases, the proper policies to put in place. But when you don't allow for differences, you create bitter zeal. When you don't allow for differences, because you interpret disagreement as only one thing, which is dismissiveness, a personal affront. You begin to judge those who don't meet the rallying cry. And this is bitter passion. This is bitter zeal. This is bitter jealousy. And and it does, and it continues to just tear churches apart. Bitter passion is why our churches, I don't think, are known for being places of peace and gentleness and reasonableness and mercy. James also warns against selfish ambition, not seeking the good of only myself, uh, but others as well. And of course, the, the selfish ambition passage is Philippians 2, where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, is it any surprise that people want to walk away from Christianity? Does that fit the ethos of our day? It's no surprise at all that people would leave the church, even over an issue like this. But the meekness of wisdom, it doesn't look like weakness. It looks like security because you're so grounded in who you are in God. You're free from the need to grasp. You're free from the need to win at all costs. Bitter zeal, selfish ambition, boasting, being false to the truth, James characterizes as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, and this will lead to the result of disorder and chaos. I think James here is like spiritual WebMD. Here's the symptom. Disorder and every vile act. And James says here is why. Driven by bitter zeal, selfish ambition, boasting, being false to the truth. On the other hand, the truth still matters. You can't be false to the truth. That's not wisdom either, is it? That's not using your tongue well or wise to have no regard and no, and, and no concern for the truth. Um, speaking the truth in love is a phrase that I think we're all familiar with, but also one that I, I hope that we can agree is hard. It's hard to speak the truth in love, which, which means what? When something's hard, what does that usually mean? It requires wisdom. It requires wisdom. Why is it so hard to speak the truth in love? Because it's hard to tame the tongue. It feels really good being right. It feels really good saying to someone, you are blind because that communicates, I can see. And that feels really good. Speaking the truth in love is speaking with the desire, though, that it be heard. And received for the good of the other. And that requires wisdom. It requires speaking truth to the heart. Not to pound people with the truth, but to walk them into the truth. Proverbs 12, 18 is so beautiful on this. It says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Often we need to trade in our sword for a scalpel. Too often we're happy enough if the truth just leaves the person bleeding which is an indication it was always about us and our pride. No, but the truth brings healing. 
It should make someone whole. That doesn't mean a scalpel feels good. I was awake during my wisdom tooth extraction, and I was metabolizing the anesthetic. Scalpels hurt. (laughs) But the intention is healing. Which brings us to the final goal of wise speech. If, if, If the goal of unwise speech or the result is disorder and chaos... Verse 18 says the goal of wise speech is a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness is to be right with God, how God created us to be. The Bible is filled with agricultural metaphors. If we're listening carefully, those are always frustrating. You know why they're frustrating? Because they take time. Harvests don't happen overnight. Speech must be wise from the standpoint that we can't control the rate of growth in others. We can't change hearts. Wisdom is meek, at least in part, because we recognize that we, by our own power, we can't overpower others. And herein lies the paradox of words. The paradox of words is that they are both so powerful, and at the very same time, they are impotent. And therein lies finding wisdom, right? That's where wisdom is found, in that paradox, that words are profoundly powerful and at the same time impotent. Because of this paradox, wisdom looks like using our words to sow in peace. We prepare conditions for growth. We cultivate peace. Our good works, our disposition toward others show what a good and lovely thing righteousness, being right with God is. A harvest of peace, not a harvest of anxiety. A harvest of grace where we can admit when we've messed up and we can cut slack and forgive others when we mess up. And that's just a weird translation of the Lord's Prayer. We can be so passionate about the truth and yet so sensitive to the fact that, you know, knowledge does puff up. And we can be free to use our words to lift up and commend and bless. Why? Because we have received the gospel of peace that God speaks to us. That's everything. If you are in Christ, no matter how much you fail, you are loved by God as if you are perfect. The Father delights in you, which crucially means that the Father speaks his peace to you. Again, every child is born into this world longing to hear the words that Adam was created to hear, which is, well done, son. Well done, daughter. A remnant of the image of God that we all bear. And friends, that word belongs to us. What is Christian growth but that word well done permeating into every aspect of our lives? I guarantee where there is sin, there is deafness to that word over you. Our words are shaped by Jesus who lived his life speaking but also withholding his words perfectly. Who cried out words of forgiveness and blessing even as he hung on the cross as a curse. And this is how we sow a harvest of righteousness as those who make peace. In the Gospel of John, after Jesus finishes the work that he came to do, after he had defeated sin and death in his resurrection, he appears to the main group of disciples three times, and he says the same thing three times. He says, peace to you, peace to you, peace to you. The Gospel is the power of God that tames the tongue by giving you rest in this identity that you have in Jesus, making you wise. The gospel is the powerful word that God speaks to us that our sins are forgiven and that we belong to him. 
It's the unchangeable word, well done. And that, friends, is what transforms us into a people of peace and gentleness and reasonableness and mercy. And that's what creates a people who speak like this too. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, seal this word into our hearts. Lord, this is uh, in, in many ways, with, uh, as James just, he, he hand feeds us application. He hand feeds us uh, exactly what we are to do. And, and maybe the remarkable thing about this particular passage is, is the reminder that there's no age exemption. Our youngest kids among us, are, can, we can be so careless with our words. Uh, those in middle age, we know what it is to harm with our words. The, the elderly know what it is to, to, to put our, our, our foot in our mouth, to be critical, to be harsh. Lord, we are all united in this reality that we cannot tame the tongue in our own strength. We sit here as people with lists so long of the ways that we failed to tame the tongue. We can see the destruction. We can see the rubble of relationships because of our inability at times to tame the tongue. And so, Lord, we cry out, have mercy. Lord, we cry out that you would sow in us a harvest of righteousness so that we, in turn, would continue to sow that harvest of righteousness out into the places where you have called us, beginning in our homes, and then to all of the places where we live out our lives. And Lord, we are unable to do that in our own strength, and so we cry out to you, Lord, give us wisdom. We cry out to you, Lord, do that work. We cry out to you, Lord, would we grasp hold of the realities that we have as those who belong to you? As those who hear over us in the gospel, the word proclaimed, well done, my son, well done, my daughter because of Jesus, our elder brother, who we are united to. Lord, we thank you for that good word. We pray this in his name. Amen.